The Ram Dhamma's Kingdom, Book Two, The Oppressed Planet by Robert P. Fitton. Episode Two, Another Planet in Another Universe. At this point, said Kellogg, I don't give a damn. My career is over. The space program is finished. Who gives a damn what happens? Bold words from a man who's the cause of all this mess, chided McGee. A man who only thought of his own. Oh, you got it, McGee. I think about what is necessary and I do it, he said as he began moving toward the stairs. Where you going now, General? asked Barrett still unnerved by the death of the passengers. I'm going to have a drink. If the rest of you are smart, you'll do the same thing before we come crashing down on the other side of this place. I let him go, said Rothstein. I'm just amazed at his audacity, thinking he could pull this whole thing off. Senator, said McGee, I'm sure this is just the tip of the iceberg. Over the years, people have probably been framed, others been killed, plans carried out. The rest of it we'll never know. Up at the bar, unbeknownst to them, Kellogg had turned on an intercom monitor and was listening to everything they said. I'll tell you one thing, said the senator, raising his index finger. If we somehow get back to Earth, I'm going to launch the biggest investigation this country has ever seen. And Kellogg's hide is going to be hanging for the whole country to see. Kellogg's face tightened and he put the drink to his lips. He stared at the senator, squinting as he spoke to himself. You'll never get the chance, Rothstein. You'll never get the chance. They'd been in the continuum for three hours and 52 minutes. The brightly colored braid was now arching down toward the amber pathways below. Strapped into their seats, they could see the surface below, where the braids linked into the pathways. The color was twisting like water going down a drain. Not a very enlightening prospect. The worst that could happen was about to happen again. Very abruptly, but not exactly unexpectedly, the ship began jolting, throwing them against their restraints. Then they were pushed back into their seats. Some of the consoles were smoldering again from the pressure, and the ship was now caught in a downward spin. The spin brought more noise and a scattering of pinpoint light flashes within and outside the ship. The internal temperature rose to an extraordinarily high level as the flashes blended into one blazing white medium. The ship was decelerating. They were inside the bright light for the longest time, pushed against the harnesses as the ship lost speed. Mesmer, up front with Savard, noticed everything, noticed something was noticed something was very odd. Not only was the ship slowing, but the gravity compensators had snapped into place. Burning red sparks were moving slowly by the windows within the light. It was as if they were coming out of a cloud bank. In reality, the ship was emerging back into time and space. Everyone was pushed forward as the colonel fought to control the craft, and it plummeted downward. Kennedy Base! Kennedy Base! He yelled into the speaker, but the radio was silent. No static, no response at all. Damn. Damn, he shouted as the craft moved lower and lower toward the ocean below. I can see the ocean, yelled Kellogg up back. Where are we, Colonel? asked Samad. Can we get a fix on the stars? Negative, Doctor. We're too low in the atmosphere, and all the computers and the radio, everything is shot out then we can't guarantee a smooth landing. I wouldn't count on it, Doctor. I hope you can swim. 
Mesmer told him. I can't even get any land scans. The ship moved down through the atmosphere. In the VIP section, they were ecstatic, but unaware of the colonel's problems up front. Using the remaining fuel, he tried to keep the SRT airborne in order to prevent an ocean crash. But the fuel warning lights were now flashing crazily. At 60,000 feet, the SRT had expended all of the remaining forward fuel. We're gliding now, said Mesmer as Kellogg rushed down the spiral stairway. Gliding? Gliding, General. And if we don't spot land within a few minutes, you might as well kiss it all goodbye. You must have scans. All scans are out. The computers are out. The radio's out, shouted Mesmer frantically. The ship moved downward toward the oceans, gliding at an alarming rate. From horizon to horizon, the blue ocean provided no hope for a landing, but all was not lost. There, there, look! Oceans and clouds were coming into view far below them. Mesmer immediately went to the computers, but they were not working in the proper alignment. He surmised they were definitely inside an atmosphere now. He quickly took over manually and brought the spacecraft around to the proper re-entry altitude. He fired the deceleration rockets and once again the ship jolted. It looks mountainous, said Savard, leaning forward. Do I take a chance that there might be an opening area within the mountains or do I try and set us down on that ocean where we could crash and sink? Not a very good choice, said Savard. Gonna chance the mountains, replied Mesmer. Kellogg remained glued to the window, not offering any suggestions, only waiting for the answer on whether they would live or die. There was a long stretch of plains leading down from jagged rocks close to the ocean, but the ship was too high. Mesmer thought they might overshoot and hit the ocean. He left the option open, however, as he brought the craft high above the mountains in a very slow turn. Now I remember how the old space shuttle pilots felt when they came into Edwards, he said as he visually scanned the horizon. Kraft descended all the time. He was beginning to wonder if he had made the right decision. All he could see were mountaintops and jagged rock ledges that could slice the ship into a scrap heap of metal. And then he saw it, a long stretch of white painted desert within the mountains extending for maybe 15 or 20 miles in all directions. All right, that's what we've been looking for, he smiled. Excellent, excellent, that looks excellent, said Savard. Everyone, please remain in your seats. With luck, I'm going to attempt a landing in that desert ahead. In the VIP section, disobeying his orders, they were out of their seats, leaning on the railing of the observation deck. The site below was very inhospitable. No roads, no trees, no apparent sign of life. A virtual desert. You all have to get back to our seats, cautioned Rodstein. So damn dry, said McGee, his arm around Annie. At least we're near the ocean, said the senator. Come on, let's get back to our seats. Wait, shouted McGee, pointing to the mountains in the distance. I see something up there. What? yelled Annie as she looked out. I'm telling you, we should all be strapped in, said Rodstein as he ran down the steps. McGee, what do you see? Up there, green area, in one of the valleys. You're right. They save our lives, he said. Now let's get strapped in before we lose our lives. Where the hell are we? Still standing next to the nose windows. I told you to sit down, General. Mesmer glanced at him, trying to bring the ship down. He's right, General, said Savad. Could be a rough landing. Looks like the desert southwest. 
or maybe Mexico, he said, finally returning to the seat behind him and buckling in the harness over his body. Mesmer started to bank the craft, but because of its extremely wide span, it was hard to control manually. He lifted the flaps, going by sheer instinct, fighting the wind currents, and he tried to keep the proper angle. Lower and lower, the ship fell through the air. The wide stretch of desert was clearly in view now beyond the mountain ranges. They came around and banked the turn, and then the colonel straightened up the alignment for the final descent. Good, Don. Good, good. Keep her steady. Keep her steady, said Kellogg. Mesmer did not need a cheering section, especially Kellogg. He concentrated on the sandy plains ahead. They were still moving extremely fast, several hundred miles an hour. As they neared the surface, just hundreds of feet in the air, the deep purple mountains were coming into view all around them in the distance. The sandy desert passed under them in a continuous blur. Mesmer's face was a twisted mass as he tried to keep the nose of the ship at a slightly upward angle, but he had no idea if it was the correct angle. He hit the landing gear switch and the lower panels opened. All the wheels fell into place. They scraped the sand and Mesmer fought for control as the craft skimmed upward. The experienced colonel tried again, lowering the nose angle, and the SRT moved downward. The wheels hit the sand again. They were all jostled in their seats as the ship, still moving at incredible speed, raced across the sands. The sands, acting as a buffer, break the SRT. Minutes later, the ship simply skidded to a stop, its wheels embedded in the sand. They had made it and were on solid ground. Dear God, you did it, Colonel, exclaimed Savard. Nice going, Don, nice going, said Kellogg as he looked back. They were all running down the spiral staircase. A brilliant job, a brilliant job, said Rothstein as he came forward to congratulate Mesmer. We should all be dead after what we've been through, said Annie, not believing they had actually landed. I quite agree. This is a historic occasion, a first for mankind. It will take years to understand all this. I'll tell you one thing, smiled Mesmer. Without those computers, I thought we really wouldn't make it. But you pulled us through, said Folsom, as he patted the colonel on the shoulder. By the looks of the area, said McGee as reality set in, I would say our troubles really haven't ended. He looked across the sands to the deep-hued mountains so far away. Outside temperatures 108 degrees, people, said Mesmer, looking at the redoubts. And those mountains, if this beam can be trusted, are 9, make that 15.9 miles away. Interesting said Rothstein. How can they possibly find us out here? You said the radio was out. I got to attempt to construct an energy beacon, said Mesmer, but that could take some time. Do you have survival kits? asked McGee. Sure, we've got survival kits, answered Mesmer. They have packs stored in both galleys, food, water, thermal tents, clothing. How can we survive all this? asked Barrett from the side. He was taking the loss of the passengers very personally. Images of little children and old people choking for air were still in his mind. All these people he had pushed to go on the flight. Look, Barrett, said McGee, dropping all the formalities. We have to go on. I just don't care anymore, Mr. McGee. Everything's been lost. The space program's been lost. Everything's been lost. 
Something you won't have to worry about, Barrett, said Kellogg loudly from the top of the stairs. While they had been celebrating the sensational landing, the general had been involved in his own plans. Strapped to his shoulder was a high-powered rifle and a pistol was stuffed in his pocket. Matt Kellogg was not going down without a fight. Are you out of your mind? asked Mesmer as he stood. You fool! Shut up! You all listen to me! I won't take any crap from any of you! You will do as I say! I think you know me well enough to know what will happen if you try anything! You have gone mad, shouted Rothstein. We don't have to listen to you bark out orders to us. You're in a barrel full of trouble, Kellogg, he said, raising his index finger at the general. A senator, said McGee, I think the general is very much aware of that fact. I think we should do exactly what he says. What the hell do you want? asked the senator. First, Savard. Savard, get up here. Why do you want Savard? asked Barrett. Have you done enough, Matt? Be reasonable. He doesn't have to be reasonable at all, shouted Folsom. Very angered with the general's tactics, he began moving forward toward Kellogg. You planted the bomb and killed all those passengers. Yes, I'm responsible, said Kellogg. I thought that had satisfied all of you. Now, Savard, get the hell up here. Now, stay where you are, doctor, said Folsom as he kept moving toward the staircase. I don't think the general wants any more bloodshed. I'm going to take that gun right out of his hand. Congressman, shouted McGee, taking a few steps forward. I don't think he cares. Exactly right, McGee. Now get back, said Kellogg as the congressman started climbing the stairs. Get back, you damn fool, he yelled, pointing the gun right at Folsom. General, think of what you're doing, said Folsom as he advanced. Kellogg was not impressed with unpersuasive arguments. He pulled the trigger just once. Folsom's eyes ignited as he grabbed his stomach. He lost his balance, falling over the rail to the cabin floor below. You're a damn butcher! A damn butcher! yelled Rothstein. You just killed a United States congressman! And I'm gonna kill a United States senator if Savard doesn't get the hell up here right now! I'm coming! I'm coming! The doctor yelled as he rushed past the others and up the stairs. Why do you want him? demanded McGee. Insurance, McGee! He'll be my insurance! Kellogg told him as Savad reached the top. You will all remain right in place. Any moves at all and Savad is dead, he said as he pushed Savad into the VIP section and closed the smoke glass doors. We have to do something, said Mesmer. We can't just let him take off. Can't believe this whole thing has happened, said Barrett as he fell back into the chair and began to pout. Believe it, Barrett, said McGee. All of it. It's all past history. The main thing now is stopping Kellogg. Well, how far can he go? asked Annie. Right, right, answered McGee. We just keep after him. Sooner or later, we'll overtake him. I never liked him. I never liked him at all, confessed Mesmer. Damn him. Listen, I'm going to climb those supports. Somebody else can lure him in from back here. That's a good idea, said McGee. Then we can all overpower him. Rothstein hovered over the body of his colleagues. Then his face tightened as he stood and turned to them. Just uh, in case anyone cares, Congressman Folsom is dead. I'm sorry, Senator, said Mesmer as he moved over to him. No, I apologize. You're only thinking about our survival, Colonel. Let's get Kellogg back here. Good, 
said Mesmer as he climbed the stairs. He reached upward and grasped the upper rafter supports. Using the wall, he braced himself and moved into a position between the beams, right over the top of the stairs. I'll bring him out, volunteered Rodstein. No, Senator, he hates you, said McGee. I'm surprised he hasn't shot you already. McGee, said Annie, looking into his eyes. She feared for his life. No, I have to do it, Annie. He walked up the spiral staircase and stood in front of the doors. Ahead, Savard was loading supplies into a large blue backpack on the bar. McGee took a deep breath and rapped on the glass. Kellogg immediately spun around with the weapon drawn. He grabbed Savard by the collar, pushing him down the aisle. What is it, McGee? He said, smiling as he pushed open the doors. Don't tempt me. I want to know what plan you have. He quickly stepped back. You'll know soon enough, he said, holding the gun to Savard's gray hair. They want to know, said McGee, pointing below. They don't have to worry about my plans, and neither will you, answered Kellogg. And then it hit him as he looked down. Where the hell is Mesmer? Right down here at the base of the stairs. He's down there at the base of the stairs, McGee lied. The general pushed Savard back inside the VIP section, and with his weapon drawn, he rushed down the top of the stairs. Mesmer seized the moment, leaping from the supports and through the air. Kellogg, a 30-year veteran of the SIA, still had excellent reflexes. He fired a gun before the colonel hit the stairs. You stupid fools! He screamed as he pumped more bullets into Mesmer's body. He waved the gun wildly. You're all dead, all of you! He ran into the VIP section, closed the doors, and Annie was the first one up the stairs, holding on to McGee as she looked at Mesmer's bullet-riddled body. Oh, McGee. Couldn't take that. It's all right, Annie. I'll be all right. Ah, oh, Mesma. Mesma, Colonel, said Rothstein softly. Kellogg's completely mad. Suddenly a light started flashing on the console. They moved behind McGee down the stairs. He stared at the console. It took a few seconds to make sense of the flashing. He just opened the hatchway at the end of the tunnel, yelled McGee. Then he turned to Barrett. Barrett, get your ass over here and tell me what's going on. He's killed Don. And now he'll probably try and kill us all. You heard him. McGee, never one to accept anything, stomped over the public relations director and physically lifted him from the seat. He pushed him over to the front consoles. Now you tell me what the hell this means. Are they outside? Screamed McGee. Barrett was set a job on McGee's bullying. His little guilt trip was over. Yes, yes, they're outside the hatch, he said as he pushed several buttons. And they've destroyed both locks, the one to the inner middle door and the outer. Then we're locked inside here. McGee will get us out, smiled Annie. Probably can cross-circuit the lock, but that would still give him several hours. There they are, said Barrett, activating the outer camera. Kellogg was standing in the sand, the sun heating his face as he waited for Savard to come down the ladder. Both men had strapped on bright blue backpacks. What do you think you what do you think you're going to do? They heard Savard yell out as he stepped into the sand. You just follow orders, Doctor, and everything will be peachy. Smiled the general. He motioned with his gun and the two men disappeared under the belly of the ship, out of camera range. You boost that audio? asked McGee. I think so, said Barrett. What they heard only added to the mystery. Neither man said anything. McGee could hear banging and a prying noise as if the general were trying to remove something from the ship. Then the light flashed on the status board. What the? began Barrett. What's he doing with the main lines? 
Then he heard Savard pleading with Kellogg. General, General, I don't know what you have in mind, but please, let's leave right now. We'll cross the desert alone. What, and allow them? Yeah, allow them to tell everyone what they know? Forget it. I wouldn't have admitted any complicity in this if I didn't think they were all dead up there. Now they're liabilities. But General... Said the exasperated Savard. Kellogg and Savard had been under the ship for about 20 minutes. Barrett had several other panel warning lights come alive on the status board during that time. McGee was up back with Annie working on the electronic lock with all the alert lights in the ships flashing wildly. He dropped the tools and they ran forward. Even from the stairs they could see the bold red and yellow letters on the display board. Overload? Good God Almighty shouted Barrett as he looked up at them. He's crossed the thrusting generator with the main lines. This man is crazy. McGee and Annie leaped down the stairs. They could see Kellogg and Savard along the sands in front of the SRT, moving away at a quick pace. Please give them a chance, cried Savard as the general pushed him forward. Only losers give chances, Doctor. I can't afford to lose this one, and neither can the country who died quite painlessly in a Force 3 explosion vaporizing for a 300-yard circle in the desert. And in time, as the sand shift, we'll have to make our report, telling the agency how we parachuted out before the SRT crashed and vaporized on impact. And us? Why do you think I had you pack those parachutes in there? We're so fortunate, Doctor. We ejected. Now get that in your head. Get moving. The inside of the SRT was beginning to vibrate, humming louder and louder as precious seconds passed. I don't know the technical aspects of this at all, said the frightened Barrett, but I do know that generator will build up in intensity. What does that mean? asked. Join us next time for another exciting adventure of the Ram Damas Kingdom, The Oppressed Planet by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.